0: Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this time that we have uh, together to, uh, to focus on you, to um, turn our attention to your word. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us insight by your spirit, that we would um, understand what is said in this passage, what's said in context, uh, what it's leading to. Father, I do ask that you would encourage us today today Uh, By the reading and studying of your word, may we have a better understanding of who you are and uh, what you're doing in our life and in our world around us. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, for this time that we have, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day... Of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Phaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw the great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand these words that I'm about to tell you, And stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, and on humbling yourselves before God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia Was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembles, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth, and I spoke, and I said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath. Been left in me. Then this one, with human appearance, touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the Prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. Father, we do thank you for this, this chapter in Daniel. Lord, we ask that you would help us to have an understanding of what it means and what happened and how it applies to our life. Uh, we are grateful for this time, and it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen. So about 16 years ago, I was, ex- I was exposed to a, a new term that I'd never heard before, um, mainly because I wasn't raised in the church, and the term was shut-in. Does everybody here know what the term shut means? Does any? Well, no, no, Yeah. Well, I'm like, no raising of hands. I'm in a mood to have people raise hands, but I'm not going to do it. So I was sort of brand, like not even a pastor, but I was sort of on the, the track of being mentored uh, to becoming a pastor. And I was asked by this pastor who's now a missionary down in uh, Central America if, he would, if I would like to join him to go visit the shut-in. And I said, sure, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what that is but I'll go. And so he drove me down to El Cajon. For those of you that know El Cajon, there's the big jail in the courthouse. I guess it's not a jail anymore because too many people are busting out of it. But but at the courthouse and in the shadow of the courthouse was this other like government building. And so we walked in the building. I'm like, where are we going? Like, I know the courthouse, but this seems weird. And he's like, this is a facility, a government facility for elderly people. And I said, oh, okay. And as I walked into the building, I, hippie jibbies I don't know if that's a technical term, but I just, something about the building just felt weird to me. Like it didn't seem like a place that I would want any one of the loved one in my family to go stay at. And so we went into the building, we went up a few flights, and we entered into this lady's room. This Rosalind West was her name. And as we walked in, it was clear who was in control of, of this meeting, it was this little old lady, Rosalind. She, she hobbled over the door. She looked at Pastor Steve, and she said, you, sit down. And so he sits down, and she's like, who's this guy? He's like, well, this is Gunnar. He's kind of like, he's just with me. So I was ignored, basically. And I sat next to Steve. And so the lady sat down, and she had a church directory. And she's like, you need to talk to me. Give me the update. What's going on around there? And I'm like, whoa, this guy is, like, being interrogated by this lady. Like, this is cool. And so he started going through the directory, and he started giving her updates about everybody in the church. And she looked at him, and she says, well, I feel so helpless now, but the only thing I can do from this place is to pray for our body. I can't go to church anymore. I can't get out. And I was, like, never had been exposed to what a shut-in is, which means somebody who can no longer get out into society and she basically was on her nearing, she died within six months, I think, but she was nearing the end of her life. And I remember walking away from that place, not, re, like, not remembering the details of what she said, but sort of I walked into the building feeling sort of like gross about the building, and I left feeling like I had seen something holy, something special that this saint she might have looked like a feeble elderly lady that couldn't do anything, but I got this sense that she was actually doing the most um, powerful thing for that body, that she was on her knees in combat, in prayer, basically from the time she went up and through the night as she could barely sleep, um, tearing through the church directory. It was one of the most meaningful things I'd been exposed to, sort of preparing for the ministry, not even knowing that I was... That this was going to happen to me, I um, my buddy's now the senior pastor of the church, and I texted him yesterday. I'm like, "Hey, can you? This is killing me. I think this lady's name was Roslyn, like Roslyn. Like I can't quite remember her last name, and I'm I'm pretty sure that when she died, that they named a little fountain at the at the bench at the stairs going up to the sanctuary. He's like, "You're talking about Roslyn West." I'm like, "I was right on her first name. I'm never right with names." And and uh, this saint had a it, she sort of awakened me to to the powerful nature of prayer. And I bring this story up because chapter 10 is this introduction to this vision that Daniel's received in an explanation that we're going to look at in chapters 11 and 12. But this whole first chapter is sort of Daniel's encounter uh, with the divine. And, And to see sort of the battle that happens In the world that we don't see, the world that Ephesians chapter 6, as it says that we're not in a a battle against flesh and blood, but about spirits and principalities and things beyond the surface that we can see, that there is a war happening all around us. And so we look at the first verse, and we read, In the third year of Cyrus the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. This seems really weird to me. Like, we know who Daniel is, we know who Belteshazzar is. We're in our tenth chapter of this book, and yet as Daniel is his name is brought up, his Babylonian name of Belteshazzar resurfaces. And I think that this is intentional. I think what what the purpose is, is that Daniel wants to draw our attention back to the beginning. And if you'll turn with me back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. As this is brought up in chapter 10, there's like we need to tie this back into chapter 1 to remind us the flow of Daniel, that everything is uh, succinct, it all fits together. And so in chapter 10, when the name Daniel is brought up, who goes by the name of Belteshazzar, we have to go back here and we read verse 6. Now among them, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. Okay, now we skip down to the very end of chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 21. And we read at the very end of this chapter, we read... And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, if you go back to chapter 10, what's the first line that we read? In the third year of Cyrus the king. So here we have Daniel. He's now an old man. Well, I I always, like, commentators refer to him as old man. That's he's he's eighty six years old at least at this at this point he's He's been through the whole seventy years of captivity, and now he's two years past when they've been freed. so he's done his service under these couple empires, and we read in the, in the year of Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. And so, verse one serves as sort of the summary statement, this overarching picture of, of what unfolded or what he sees or is about to reveal to us in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so, we see that sort of two things. We see message and vision. They could be distinct. They could be the same. I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but regarding this vision and the message that he heard, he says first and foremost that this message was true. He says it was about a, a great conflict, so great that it was it's disturbing in nature to read about, to study, what he describes in these closing chapters is, is, is troubling. And he tells us that as he uh, heard the message and saw the vision, he understood the things that were presented to him. And So that's sort of the introduction. We get into verse 2, and we read, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food. I love this verse 3. Like I, I did not eat any tasty food. Nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointments at all during the three week uh, until the entire three weeks were completed. So we see this period in Daniel's life. Something had happened to him. Something was so disturbing to him that that, that he turns to a, a, a type of fasting. This isn't where he's withholding withholding all food. Um, it almost seems like we go back to Daniel chapter 1 again when they were grooming these young men and Daniel and his, compa- his compatriots say, hey, uh, we don't want to eat that stuff. We don't want to drink the king's wine. How about you You put us on a fast of just fruits and vegetables and grains and, and see how we do? And, and so that was a season. So it seemed like at the end of Daniel's life, Daniel, res- he began eating the food of the Babylonians. He was in a position of prestige and authority. And he had access to the finest of the foods. But during this season, during this period of agony where he's troubling himself, he says, I withheld from eating the tasty food, from the good barbecue and the nice wine. I didn't touch this for three weeks. I didn't place any ointment on my head. Or in modern translation, he said, I didn't shower or bathe for three weeks. It was showing my my mourning and the intensity that I was seeking God. I want to ease into verse four a little bit because it gives us a timestamp. It says, "On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris." Now, this sort of gives us a timestamp. We're well not sort of; it gives us an exact timestamp um, <clears throat> that allows us some insight to history that was happening during that time that sheds light. On why Daniel was so troubled. And so, if you'll turn back to the beginning of the Bible, to Ezra, it's just, it's a, it's a, it, there's a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible, and it'll guide you. Ezra is one of those ones that always hides from me as well. I should have bookmarked this or followed my own advice. So, you'll eventually find Ezra. Now, in the beginning part of Ezra, we go back in time two years from what we're reading now in Daniel chapter 10. And so we read in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is there among you Of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together, with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." Okay, so we, re- we read this proclamation. This pro- proclamation is sent out very early on. The, the Jews are free to go. They no longer have to stay here in bondage. They can return back to their land. They can, re- re- they can rebuild their temple. Um, this happened around the time that Daniel receives the vision of, of, of uh, Daniel chapter 9, the vision that, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, that the temple would re- be rebuilt, that these things would happen over a period of time. Um, for Daniel, I wonder if he thought that this was the beginning of that, that timeline kicking off. We know um, historically that this wasn't the event that kicked off the timeline. So, this isn't to be con- confused with Nehemiah chapter 2 that I've referenced in the last few weeks. This is before that. Um, the instruction in Nehemiah chapter 2 was to rebuild all of Jerusalem, including the temple. And here, this is dealing just with the temple. In, in Jerusalem. And so the, the, the people of, of Israel they're they're free to go home. Um, we we know that very few Jews actually returned. Um, that, uh, it's believed that about fifty thousand people returned um, from from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. Ezra sort of records the story uh, 50,000 was, was a small number of the able-bodied people that could have participated in the rebuilding of the temple. Um, many of the Jews stayed back in Babylon content with, um, with life under, in Babylon. They, they, they were comfortable. There was no need to go back. And so they kind of settled in. And we think, well, what about Daniel? Well, he was about 86 years old. We don't know of his health. At 86 years old, you're less likely to want to go build a temple, like to go start doing manual labor. Uh, We're told that Daniel was to serve in captivity until this first year. It doesn't say anything about going beyond. So so Daniel stays back uh, for whatever reason. But clearly when we look at this beginning of chapter 10, even though he stayed back, his heart was in Jerusalem. His heart was following the progress of what was going on with the temple, following the progress uh, that he wanted the temple to be rebuilt. He wanted there to be forward motion. And if you were to keep reading through Ezra, you would see that by chapter 4 or 5 that some bad reports came in, uh, that there was persecution coming to these people that were trying to uh, build the temple. There was uh, Jews that were sort of against it, and they, they, the progress sort of came to a halt. Uh, David Jeremiah says this concerning the news that Daniel likely received. He writes, the news from Jerusalem was also disturbing. The small remnant of the Jews who had returned weren't working very hard. It took them two years just to get the foundation of the temple started. In addition, some of the renegade Jews who lived in that territory, decided that they were going to give the builders a hard time. The fourth chapter of Ezra records how the enemies of Judah did everything they could to discourage the builders. Finally, an edict was was sent out to stop all the reconstruction work. The word filtered back to Daniel via Camel Express, and he heard that his people had fallen back into the same kinds of sins that put them into captivity in the first place. And so when Daniel gets this news, he goes into a type of fast. He stops bathing. He withholds key choice foods, and he prays, and he prays, and he seeks God's face, and he seeks that God's hand would would move upon the people that are there in Jerusalem working on the temple. Um. We come to verse five. In the midst of this prayer, we read that Daniel lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of a man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. Anybody want to help me with that word? Ufas? <laughs> Sound good to you guys? Um, his body was like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a t- tumult. So if you're reading this, you go, this sure sounds familiar. You'd be right. If you want to listen to me as I read Revelation. So if we go to Revelation, or you can stay in Daniel and sort of follow along in Daniel to compare and contrast. In Revelation, as John was on the island of Patmos, as he sees the revelation of Christ, this is what he records, beginning in verse 12. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had, has been made to glow in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So you read John's account of this vision, and his reaction, it seems really similar to Daniel, like in what he saw. So the first question is, well, what do we do with this vision? And there are three, there are three predominant thoughts. The first thought is that this is a Christophany, uh, that this is an appearance of the pre pre-incarnate, preincarnate Christ, that before Christ came to earth, he appeared to Daniel and he, he showed him himself, that Daniel had a glimpse of the sun in heaven, Um, kind of from the vision that was seen in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, I believe is where it is. Um, That's one option. There are many well-respected Bible scholars who hold this position. The second position is that this is an angel, and there are many well-respected Bible scholars that hold that this is an angel. And the reason that they hold that this is an angel deals with, if we skip ahead to verse 10 or verse 11, and when this voice begins speaking, it says, I have now been sent to you. So some would push back right away and say, well, uh, God's not sent anywhere. And then I would kind of argue with them and say, well, for God so loved the world that he (laughs) sent his son. So that's kind of a weak argument. But, then their real pushback comes in verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Hey, 21 days, you go back to Dan- like Daniel, how long was he there for? 24 days fasting? So he's praying, this individual's trying to get to them, but they're held up for three weeks because they're uh, sort of engaging in spiritual warfare, like f- what we would call spiritual warfare is like physical warfare for them, that there's this battle ensuing that's restricting them from getting to Daniel, and they say there's no way that God could be withheld from anybody. It seems like a strong argument to me. Like These are all guys I respect. It's like, okay, I see that. Then there was a third guy or a third group of people that gave uh, the third option that I kind of like. They kind of take the, the both of them, and they, they distinguish what's seen in the first nine verses from what happens from verses 10 and, and, and following. They say that Daniel sees this vision, that he's given this insight into the, the, the holies, and he sees the Son of Man there in all of his glory, and it's reflected just as John saw in Revelation. And then in verse 10, when we read, then behold, a hand touched me and set me On my hands and knees, he said to me, Daniel, of most high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. They would say that this then enters an angel. So they say both. So, it's your choice. I I feel free to hold whatever you want to hold. Depending on the time of day or who I'm reading is where I'll, well, you make a good argument. I'll go over here. Then the other guy speaks. He's like, oh, that's pretty good. And then it's the you know, whatever the story is with the porridge, it's just right, you know maybe they're not that both um, I don't think whatever position you hold on this, i don't think it affects the message of the story. The bottom line is that Daniel encounters the divine or, or close to the divine, so either the divine or an angel who's been in god 's presence and is god's messenger and comes in, in a way that basically terrifies daniel um, verse 7 we read now i daniel alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision they saw something or became aware of something because nevertheless a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves like true friends <laughs> So I was left alone. Like I, I've been those guys and had friends like those guys. I can't. It's probably God's grace that I don't remember what story fits with my experience of this. But there you are with everybody that says this is a great idea. You execute the great idea, and it turns out it's a terrible idea. And you're standing there alone. Uh-oh, that was a terrible idea. What was I thinking? Now, this is different. It's, it's, they see something, they scatter, and Daniel is there. He couldn't get away from this. So I was left alone, verse 8, and I saw this great vision. And no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. And I retained no strength, but I heard the sound of his words. And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This is just utter terror. Which to me is like, I like the case of the both options. But it, I don't know. It seems, it sure seems like he saw God. And he's he's terrified. Same reaction that John has over in, in Revelation chapter one. Now in verse 10, we see then behold a hand Touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, Daniel of high esteem. Um, some, some translations, I think the New Living Translation, the word literally is, is uh, precious one. Um, it's beautiful. He's there praying, he's seeking God for his people, he has all these terrible reports, doesn't seem like God's answering his prayers we're come to where we going to come to learn that God has been trying to send somebody to him for three weeks and that there's a battle raging and that's causing the delay. It's not that God doesn't hear him. It's not that God isn't responding to him. Then Daniel gets the vision and then this individual, whether it's the same one or two different, I don't know. If Daniel was terrified, then being touched by this individual would make it even worse I would think. And the first things out of him, he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, O precious one, you're precious in God's eyes. You're loved by God. Don't be afraid. Understand the words that I'm to tell you and stand up. For I've now been sent to you. And when he'd spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, don't be afraid. I, I hear Jesus' words after his, his resurrection when he goes to the apostles and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. It's okay. Verse 12, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come to respond to your words. Don't think that this little delay has been any indication that God doesn't care for you or love you or he hasn't heard for you. This is verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So this is like one man against many. It goes like from the like the singular then by the end of verse 13, it's like the kings of Persia were told that there's this angel, Michael, that came to assist. Many suggest that this is the angel Gabriel that's coming. And so Gabriel's engaged in this battle. I mean, this is epic. Like if you like war movies and fight movies, like this is the fight movie of all. He's there, all of the odds are against him, then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Michael shows up to basically go back-to-back with him to fight their way out of this. I mean, this is amazing. And he says, finally, like I got out of that jam because Michael came, who will come see the end if you, uh, verse 21, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince, which is where the idea of sort of guardian angels comes from. But, but there seems to be this, this angel Michael was assigned to Daniel Throughout the course, like maybe it was Michael's, I'm totally just speculating, like in the lion's den that protected Daniel from those lions, I don't know. But so he comes, they deal with this battle, and he says in verse 14 Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Throughout Daniel, there's been prophecy that's been given that is so detailed that critics have a hard time believing it because it was fulfilled with such accuracy. Uh, There's reports of one seminary, a liberal seminary, where the professor is teaching about Daniel, and the professor tells the class that this book of Daniel was written during the Maccabean period because there was no way that anything could be prophesied with such detail. And the report goes, that this one student raises his hand and says, then why is it that in Matthew 24 that Jesus says Daniel wrote Daniel? And reportedly the professor's response was that he knows more about the book of Daniel than Jesus did. S- seriously. <laughs> you know? But there are liberal scholars who fall in the banner of Christianity who say what is about, that we're about to study over the course of the next few weeks is impossible because it was fulfilled precisely. But Daniel's told, he's like, hey, I'm going to explain to you what you saw and these visions and th- the, the, the prophetic clock is ticking away and these things are going to start unfolding. And we see that God gives prophecy Ultimately to give us hope. This whole passage shouldn't like terrify us about spiritual warfare and all this stuff. And so we read in verse fifteen. <clears throat> when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips and opened my mouth and and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. How can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now, no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. So we see Daniel respond like many others, like Gideon. When God comes to Gideon and says, hey, you're going to be a mighty warrior, and Gideon's like, who are you talking to? <laughs> I'm just th- I'm, I just thresh grain. I think of Moses, who stuttered and says, I can't do, like, I, can't, like, maybe my, you, I think you mistake me for my brother, he's really articulate. We see these examples of of humble men and women that God uses, that their heart is right before them because we bring nothing to the table. And Daniel looks at him and says, I'm so overwhelmed, I can't even speak, my strength is gone. And I love this, Daniel's 86 years old, he's been dealing with God since he was, before he was a young man at like 12, 13, 14 when he was taken into captivity, God gave him these, this gift of, of seeing these dreams and interpreting them and going through great things like watching his buddies in the, uh, the fire, seeing himself being cast into the lion's den. He's had a lifetime of following after God and it doesn't lead him to arrogance. It leads him to, to total humility. But well, recognizing that he doesn't bring anything to the table, that if anything's going to be done through him, it's because of what God is doing. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. He doesn't grow in complacency with his relationship with God. He's not sporting a bumper sticker on his camel that says, Jesus is my copilot." His disposition is Jesus or is my all. He's Lord, and he governs the path of my steps Verse 18, then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, precious one, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Shalom. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. He said okay my strength is back i'm ready to move forward with whatever you're here for then he said do you understand why i came to you but i shall now return to fight against the prince of persia so i'm going forth and behold the prince of the greece is about to come however i will tell you what is inscribed on the writing of truth yet there is no one who stands firm who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I is still the angel speaking arose to be an encouragement and protector for him. So we sort of conclude this section of the encounter that Daniel has with this angel, this vision. And going into chapters 11 and 12, he's going to share with us what was revealed to him concerning end times and 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 the rise and the fall of these nations that, that, was, that was predicted precisely. <clears throat> but before we get there, there are some things that the angel tells Daniel. First thing he says is don't be afraid. Like, peace be with you. God is offering you peace. These things are happening. You're not battling them in your own strength that um, reminds me of Ephesians, you know the armor of God that that, that Paul teaches the things that we 're warring against aren 't things that we see, not flesh and blood but but beyond us, beyond what we can see is, is this realm of warfare i don 't know if you guys have read or heard of uh, frank freddy 's books, like this present darkness, but the first time I read though it 's like fascinating i mean fascinating in a horrifying way because like i, I I don't really think like I'm not the guy that stubs my toe and says, "Oh, I'm under attack." Like that's just—I'm not saying that as a as a prideful thing. Like I, I'm the guy that tries to handle things in the the human by first response, and then often as I'm in the throes of something, by like a couple of weeks, it's like maybe there's some spiritual warfare behind. Like it's like the last thing I begin to think of, but Frank Ferretti writes this novel, and kind of exposes like, the, world, the normal world that we're living in, and he shows sort of the, the demonic activity that's, that's happening just under the surface of everything that's going on in normal day life. And it's a good eye-opener, because I know my propensity is not to default that way. But just because I don't default that way doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so he says, don't be afraid. Live in, the, live in the peace that God's offered. Live courageously. Live in his strength. It may look bleak at times. You may be hearing terrible reports. But what God has declared will come to fruition. And so I think of that lady Rosalind West that I mentioned earlier. I, um, I've been more and more convicted to be more disciplined about prayer. I think so often we come to prayer and we think, oh, I'm going to, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, as Bart Simpson would pray, kind of for his meal, (laughs) something shallow. But but to, to recognize that God has given us this gift to communicate with him through prayer, and so often we take it so lightly, Today we're taking communion. I feel like this passage fits with communion. And how does communion fit with this, this battle scene that Daniel reveals to us? The first thing I think of is a couple weeks ago in the Men's Bible Study on Saturday, we, we covered uh, 1 John 4.4, 4, and there's a verse there that says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so the promise is that as in Christians, while there's all of this demonic activity and things that we can't see, the promise that we're told is that in Christ we have him within us and he is more powerful than any of the demonic realm. He's crushed the demonic realm. And so we don't have to walk around trembling and fearful of every little corner. We have the power of Christ within us, and he has conquered death. And so we're told and encouraged to abide in him and to walk with him in our lives. The other thing that this passage reminds me of, this prayer scene of Daniel, what it reminds me of is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, the creator, Colossians 2 tells us that he spoke creation into existence. If there was anybody that could be complacent about prayer, it would be Jesus. And yet we're told that before he was taken into custody, he threw himself into a warfare of prayer. So, so powerful that we're told that he was like sweating drops of sweat that the capillaries had bursted so that sweat and blood sort of came out of his, his cells. And so often we're like the disciples who are snoring off to the side. And he says, couldn't you just pray for one hour? And so as we take communion today, I'm going to ask the guys to come forward to, to, to pass out the elements. They're going to come forward. They're going to pass them out. And as they're going out, I would encourage you to, to reflect and confess your sin. Um, as you're holding the elements, don't take the elements just yet. But as you're reflecting on your life, as you're confessing your sin, as you're reflecting on what God would have for you, these elements, they're, they're symbols, they're, they're reminders of Jesus' broken body and his blood. Yeah, good <clears throat> Rick's about to charge the hill. Um, but to remember the weight that was on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that as his body was broken for you. And so, Father, as we pass the elements now, as we prepare them, Lord, I ask that you would just help each one of us, Lord, to just to consider you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this gift that we have in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as we hold these elements. Father, I pray that you would help us to to be able to imagine the pressure the weight that was on Jesus in the garden of gethsemane as he prayed for what he was about to endure that there was a great spiritual battle occurring on our behalf so father we confess that so often we uh, we miss the mark of of realizing the spiritual significance of things that have happened for us that you have enlisted us into participating with. And so, Lord, as we reflect upon um, these things, we pray that you would stir in our hearts, Lord, areas that we need to confess. Lord, show us yourself, and it's in Christ's name we pray. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, there are, there are three things that we're supposed to do uh, when we participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the first thing that we're called to do is, is to reflect, um, to examine ourselves. It's sort of uh, like going back to square one. When we hold these elements, the broken cracker and the juice, what it does is it takes us back to the cross, And we're confronted with the reality that the only reason we have any relationship with God is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He gave his life for us. His body was broken. He absorbed the weight of the sin of the world that he took it fully in. And we're told that the Father was satisfied with what he'd done. He was our propitiation is a technical term. Then we have the juice, his blood, which is a reminder of the new covenant, that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for us. It was once and for all. He paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And so we come to these two things, and it forces us to get right with God, that we examine the areas that we've gone astray in our life as as followers of Christ. If you're not a believer, you're confronted. Well, It's for believers. But if you're not a believer and you see communion, you're confronted with the reality that you need Christ's work on the cross in your life. The second thing that we're told to do um, is, is to remember, I kind of talked about it a little bit, to remember his broken body, his blood. So confess, remember. And then the third thing is that we're to proclaim the good news until he comes back. And so, Father, we thank you again for your broken body. We thank you for the blood that washes us white as snow. We thank you uh, that you're a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, infinite chances, that it's not based on our work, it's based on yours. And so, Father, I pray that you would help our minds to be renewed day by day. It's so easy for Satan to slip into our thought patterns, and to think uh, that we messed up today, that we sinned again, and so therefore your graces run dry for us. But your word tells us over and over again that Christ paid it all. It's sufficient. It's complete. And so, Father, we ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us, that you would help us to confess our sins to you uh, quickly. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a gracious people with others, uh, with our spouses, with the people around us, with our children, with our co-workers. Father, we ask that the gospel would be displayed in our lives day by day. Father, we ask that you would give us the courage to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the world around us that's perishing. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need you to guide us, you to lead us, and your spirit to work in and through us. God, we're grateful for all that you have done and are doing in our lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.